I interview the mailman occasionally. It started because the mailman would come by in the summers, and, and I asked him one day, I said, how many times do people ask you the question, hot enough for you? And he said, like 400, like 400 all time. He goes, like 400 last week. I was like, does that get old? And he's like, oh, man, come on. And I thought, okay, so here's my assignment. I'm going to be the person who, when the mailman sees me, he goes, a real question is coming. We're going to have a real interaction. So I don't quite know how to do the small talk thing. I go to, like, deep questions. So we had, what's, your, what's the greatest band of all time? That was one day. And you guys, of course, know what he said, right? You think Pink Floyd is the greatest band of all time? That's fantastic. Would you have seen that coming with, with, her, with Mary? Would you have, would, that, you, that you two have something vaguely in common? I know that you think The Grateful Dead, but Pink Floyd's at least in that realm. And what did I hear over here? Bruce Springsteen, the boss? Gabe, have you even heard of Bruce Springsteen? Sometimes it's like someone took a knife, baby, edgy and dull. Okay. What else? What did I hear? Something else. Somebody else said something. The who? My Chemical Romance. Sounds dark. It's a dark name. Do you know what he actually said, though? Oh, wait. You guys want to give more opinions. I can feel it. The Eagles? The most hated group in rock and roll. Oh, people hate them. I don't know. I guess they're a bunch of prima donnas. Drama queens. Fantastic music, though. Hotel California. We will get to a sermon. Trust me. It's coming. Well, he said Aerosmith. And I was like, greatest of all time? I can understand if the question was favorite band. Yeah, favorite band is a different question than greatest. Because everyone probably should say the Beatles, even though we're all tired of their songs. Aren't you tired of the Beatles? It's like, okay, that's enough. I get it. Hey, Jude, be quiet. (laughs) Then one time I said, what's the greatest uh, sports team of all time? I'm hearing Phillies. I'm hearing Yankees. I heard uh, the Golden State Warriors a few years back, the 73-win season. Larry Bird said he's not sure if Steph's the greatest shooter of all time. Talk about insecure much, Larry. Come on. Seed the title. He said 1927 Yankees, but it's a real close second with the 85, 86, which year was it? The Bears? Duh, Bears. The Fridge. So yesterday's question was, I ran out to meet him because he had gotten the mail in before I noticed him and I saw him putting the neighbor's mail in and I ran out. I ran across the street. I said, hold up, question of the day. And he stops. Okay. What is the best thing about being alive? And he stood there for a long time. People were waiting to get their bills and their junk mail. Yeah, bills and junk mail. That's all it is. Who wrote you a letter in the past 10 years? Like, your mom is the only one, you know? And her letter just said, call me. Um, You know what he said the best thing about being alive is? He said, probably that... And then he had to qualify it. For me, for me, I get to watch my kids grow up. I said, hmm. So what I hear underneath your answer is relationships and love is the best thing about being alive. So maybe, maybe Mary's right. We should tell people, if that's the most important thing in life, maybe we ought to tell them that. You know, you matter to me. 
I, my life is richer because you're in it. All right, should we start the sermon? A little, did I hear a no? Did I? Did, did. I remember one time I said, all right, okay, I'm almost finished. I'm preaching, and I don't know how long. I must have went a while. And I said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm finished. And it was like, what, Nevin Yutzi. I hear him out loud say, oh, finally. And I look up, and Weston's like, This boy. But there were adults around that were like, I agree with the kid. I agree. One day I'll be as brave as he is. So on Friday, the skies went dark and there was a loud cry. And Jesus gave up his spirit. And the demons, they almost can't believe it. They almost can't believe it. And they're watching. No breath, no pulse. We did it. We, we did it. We did it. Satan's called the ruler of this world. Jesus called him that. It says that when Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Remember John leaning against Jesus' chest said, who, which one's going to betray you? Because the Lord said, you're all going to deny me and one of you is going to betray me. And John leans in close and whispers, who? And Jesus quietly says, the one who takes the bread right after I do. And Judas takes the bread, doesn't know this little conversation just happened, takes the bread and it says, and Satan entered into him. And he went went to the religious leaders and said, how much you give me if I turn him over to you? I know where he's going to be. We find later in Scripture that it says, if the rulers and authorities had understood what was going on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had understood, they wouldn't have done it. You remember when the demons, they were constantly confused and freaked out to see that Jesus had come. What are you doing here? Why are you here? They have no clue why he has come. All they know is that the judge, that one day they're going to be judged, and now all of a sudden the judge is here ahead of time, ahead of schedule. What are you doing here? Remember the man that's filled with thousands of demons, the garrison demons? He runs not from Jesus, he runs to Jesus and falls on his face and says, please don't torment me. They have no clue why he's here, but they know it's not good for them. If they had understood they wouldn't have crucified him you know why they wouldn't have if they had understood that by murdering him they were playing into his plan to defeat them and release humans from their grip 
they never would have done it. When Jesus gave up his spirit, you and I, remember this, what it says? What happened at the moment he died in the temple? Top to bottom, the veil that separates the Holy of Holies in the temple is ripped in half to say, access granted. No more distance, no more separation. So they said, Friday, we did it. We did it. Jesus said that he came to destroy the works of the evil one. Did you know that? Well, technically that was John saying that about Jesus later. In Acts chapter 10, it says God anointed Jesus with the spirit and power and he went around doing good and freeing all who were oppressed by the evil one, by the enemy, because God was with him. His whole mission was to set people free from demonic captivity. His whole purpose is to destroy the works of the devil. And he does it not through an arm wrestling match, not through swords and shields and spears, not not through a physical show of force, but through allowing the evil one to do his worst by laying his life down as the innocent sufferer. It doesn't make any sense. Some people think that Judas, his last name or his little title is what? Iscariot. And a sicari is a dagger, and Iscariot seems to be a derivative of that term. There were these people, these violent uh, patriotic revolutionaries, these militia, uh, Jewish patriotic militia guys called the Sicari. And some people think that Judas Iscariot was one of them, and some people suspect that possibly he was hoping to provoke Jesus to finally take up arms. Maybe we can finally provoke Jesus into taking up arms. It's a theory. Who knows if it's true? I do know this. As soon as, as soon as Judas betrayed Jesus, he had such bitter remorse that he took his life. If they had understood, they would not have crucified him. Jesus, it says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross. They stripped him down naked. They beat him. They flogged him. They punched him in the face. They slapped him in the face. They hit him with rods. They made fun of him. They put a purple robe on him and and pretended to bow down to him. Instead of putting a crown on his head, they they bent thorns together and pressed them down onto his skull. Hail the king of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with the thorns on. Oh, he's a prophet? They blindfolded him and slapped him. Who hit you since you're a prophet? Scripture says he did it for you and me. He says, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. Was he murdered? Yes, he was murdered. Was his trial fair? No. There was no evidence. The the witnesses were lying. 
They couldn't, they couldn't even get, they, they paid witnesses and they couldn't get the paid witnesses to agree. The trial was a complete sham. Pilate knew it was a sham, knew he was an innocent man and wanted to set him free, but the crowd screamed, give us Barabbas. Barabbas actually was a violent revolutionary who'd murdered men. Barabbas was a violent, evil man. Isn't that a metaphor for you and me? Can you imagine being Barabbas? You're sure that morning when you woke up, whenever I stand and, and, and face trial, the verdict will be death. I'll be crucified because crucifixion was what Romans did to those who rebelled against their authority. They wanted to make an example of them. It's a slow death. They hang you on, they don't hang you, they nail you to a cross and they put that cross in a public roadway so that everyone can see you suffering for two days, three days. The point of it is to strip you naked and take every bit of your dignity from you. It's not just the physical torture, it's the social torture. We want to make your name a curse. And that morning, Barabbas is thinking, as soon as I face the judge, this is what's going to happen to me. And because they chose Jesus instead, he was the one who was guilty. But Jesus was hung in his place. Are you listening to me? Friends, we're Barabbas. And so the trial's a sham. Was he murdered? Yes. Was he wronged? Yes. But Jesus wanted his disciples to know this in advance. He did not want them to think, by the way, don't miss the point. He didn't want them to miss the point of what had happened. He warned them repeatedly, and they still couldn't take it in. He told them over and over, starting in Mark chapter 8, hey, who am I? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're right, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the spirit of my father revealed this to you. And from that moment, as soon as he finally unveiled the secret, because he kept his messiahship a secret as much as he could, which is very interesting. He escaped from the crowds as much as he could, which is very interesting. He was more interested in bringing the kingdom to an individual than in, gain, in getting a movement started. He was not remotely interested in starting a movement on planet Earth. But he was very interested in delivering people out of oppression and sin and back into fellowship with their father in freedom and peace. But the more he did it, the more the crowds were like, is he the one? Is he the one? Is he the one? And he knew they showed up for the bread and the miracles. And very few of them wanted to do the will of God. And he said, the only ones that actually are in are the ones who do the will of God. But he kept it a secret until Mark 8, finally he says, yeah, you're right, I am the Messiah. And here's what it's going to look like. It's not going to look like what you thought. I will head to Jerusalem. I don't have to. I choose to. No one's making me. I'm called to it. My father said so. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to reject me. They're going to flog me. They're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Luke chapter 10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He's doing it for you and me. 
The, de the demons didn't understand. They thought, we've got him now. They didn't understand. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? This is going to be really, really cheesy, what I'm about to say. One of my favorite movies of all time is Hook. And you remember Peter Pan's grown up? He's lost his, he's lost his, his inner child. He's lost his spark. He doesn't even know he's Peter Pan. He thinks he's a businessman with a cell phone and a big fat belly. He doesn't know how to play. He doesn't know how to pretend. And therefore, he doesn't know how to fight. And he doesn't know how to crow. And he doesn't know how to fly. Until he remembers his happy thought. This is one of my favorite scenes in there. Suddenly, he remembers his happy thought. And he can fly. He shows up later. And his son, who's been taken captive by Captain Hook, is like, that's my dad? Because Hook, like, made him so bitter against his dad because his dad had been a horrible father. And his dad's now fighting and flying and sword fighting and spinning and just destroying all the pirates. And he's like, Peter Pan's my dad? And Peter Pan flies down to him and he goes, I remembered my happy thought. It was you. I love that. I know it's cheesy. I realize it's cheesy. But Jesus for the joy set before him was willing to endure the scorn, the stripping, the mocking, the flogging, the beating, the crucifixion, the indignity of it, the torture of it. it and he knew it was coming, and he knew it was coming, and the grief of realizing and the stress of what was coming, it says he was praying the night before and knowing it was coming. He was, it says he was sweating drops of blood. This was not something he looked forward to. This was, this, you know, like everybody's got to die. But you just hope your death isn't that painful and horrible. Don't you hope that? I do. I've prayed about that. I remember I, I used to seek God about that inordinately until finally one day the father told me I'm going to have a good death. I don't know what that means, but apparently I'm going to have a good death, you guys. Crucifixion does not seem like a good death to me. But you know what? Do you know what? He kept his scars for a reason. And we worship him every Sunday. We worship him as the crucified one. Because we know the meaning of the crucifixion. We know it wasn't just a tragedy. We know it was a choice. And we know that the joy set before him that caused him to be willing to endure it was you and me in relationship with him. I'm going to read you Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. How are we doing, by the way? This is your story and mine. Get that pocket tucked back in. Ephesians 2, listen to the word of the Lord. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And sins and trespasses aren't the same thing. Sins, you miss the mark. Trespasses, you willingly miss the mark. 
we were all dead in sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Okay, 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 the whole world's dead. Following the prince of the power of the air. Oh, okay, the whole world's under demonic influence. All righty, okay, it's pretty bleak. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I've said this in here a number of times, and it seems to get shock and gasps, like I've said something crazy. Most people go to hell. Just what did I just read you from Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? We are not, people are not okay. And we're not doing okay. We're all kinds of messed up and not love. We're not love. We're not, we're not, we need help. We need saving. But God, being rich in mercy. You know what God has an awful lot of? Like, if you look around in God's house, you know what you find a lot of in there? He's got a lot of this stored up. He has never told one lie. He's never sinned against anybody. He's never, he's never sinned in his anger. Not one time. Not one time. He has no skeletons in his closet. There's nothing he's ever done that he regrets. There's nothing that he's ever done that he regrets. But you know what you'll find an awful lot of in his house? He's got, like, tons of the stuff. It's mercy. Did you know mercy triumphs over judgment? Did you know God doesn't even like to bring judgment? He prefers mercy. He errs on the side of mercy over judgment. He's rich in mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead, he loved us. When we were sinners, he loved us. When we were at our worst, he loved us. When we were in our trespasses, not just our sins, he loved us. I mean, when, when I'm at my worst, I'm behaving so badly and mistreating you, and I'm hurting your feelings, and I'm upsetting you. Is that the moment that you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save this kid. I'm going to lay my life down for this kid. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay any price to get this kid back in my family. That's what I'm going to do. Well, that's what God did. While we were at our worst, it says, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, not after we proved that we wished we could change, not after we knocked on his door and pleaded with him and woke him up and showed through nine years of begging and pleading that we're serious this time. No, 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 no. That didn't happen. That's not how it happened. We didn't want God. We didn't love God. We didn't care about that. We were still living in the kingdom of me. Me, 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 all day, every morning, noon, and night, and even in the romantic relationships and everything else we were about, even though we said you with our lips, our heart was always me, me. I like you for what you do for me. I like you for how you make me look, me feel, me. Then and there, that's when he said, okay, all right, Jesus, you go. Son, go, go, go. And it says he made us alive. Hmm. Made us alive. We were dead, verse 1. You were dead. I was dead. Verse 4. But God made us alive. 
That's my story, y'all. Why did he make us alive? Why did he have mercy on us? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, by grace you've been saved, and then he raised us up with him. All right, so first he was resurrection. He made us alive with Jesus. But now he's talking about ascension. Remember when Jesus floated up and sat at the right hand of the Father? Ephesians 2, 6. And God raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because that's where the Father is. So Jesus gave us access to the Father, perfect access to the Father. Did you know you have the access to the Father Jesus has? Because you're in, you're in Him. Do you know you're not doing as well as your personal momentum? You're doing as well as Jesus' momentum. Sometimes it was like, oh, I got three days in a row where I prayed. Now I can really have fellowship with the Father. Stop it. Quit it. You're in Christ. Your life's going as well as you're believing. It's going as well as the resurrection and your access to how well it's going is your level of whether you receive it or not. I better keep reading this. Otherwise, I'll just keep yelling at you about it. For by grace, oh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping a verse. That's don't, don't do it. And he raised us up with him and seated him, us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So for like thousands of years to come, He'll be unpacking. You'll be, we'll be discovering the riches of his grace. That's your future, y'all. A couple hundred years from now, a couple hundred years from now, you'll still be waking up to the gift. You'll still be, incre you'll be increasing in delight and joy in it. In the, in the ages to come, there's an unfolding. And you didn't do it, he says. It's, it's a gift. It's a God. It's not works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we could walk in them. I remember I used to tell my story. By the way, my story is at 19 years old, I was completely far from God, completely in rebellion, completely on drugs and lost and hopeless and just, I was a basket case. But God... But God met me, encountered me, not in church, not through a preacher, not through a missionary, encountered me. Boom. Encountered me over and over. His reality, his voice, his presence. And I surrendered. And I said, if you'll take me, yes. Boop. Peace comes in. It was like, it's exactly like the hymn. Where, where John Wesley, or actually it was Charles Wesley, his brother. He said, long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin in nature's night, your eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's my story. My wife used to say, I wish I had a cool testimony. Uh, did you just read Ephesians 2? You were dead in trans... This is my story. I was dead in transgressions and sins in which I used to live when I didn't know God. But then God in his mercy united me with Jesus, made me alive, and now I have God as my father. I'm going to heaven forever. He took the cross for me. He did it for me because he loves me, because of the great love with which he loves me. Now, 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 it's no longer I who live, Galatians 2.20, but it's Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the body I live by faith and the son of God who loved me and gave, gave himself for me. Am I talking too fast? I can go faster, I think. 
And she used to say, I wish I had a cool testimony like you. What do you mean? You wish you were dumber like I was? How dead is dead? I mean, you want to be more dead in sin? You were already dead in sin, Carrie. You were dead in church. I was dead out of church. I was dead on drugs. You were dead without drugs. It doesn't matter. You have the same testimony as me. Man, some people's whole Christianity is so lame, so stupid, so boring, so dumb, that the only story they have is what they did before they met Jesus and how bad it was. That's just the beginning of the story. The story doesn't even get good till you've walked with him a while. Are you with me? Yeah. Acts, the book of Acts says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. What are you talking about? He's already in heaven. What else could he do and teach? Now his spirit is on the body and the body is fulfilling and doing the work that he was doing when he was here. Now the fun starts. I need water. <clears throat> That's my story. That's your story. I was dead. Now I'm alive. But now what? Verse 10, I get to walk with Jesus. There's good works prepared for me. There's good works prepared for you. All the crazy of our testimony, that's not the story. That's just the beginning. Now the real story starts. Now I get to walk with him. Now I get to live what life was made for. Now I got resurrection power living in me. You guys know, when I first met Jesus, man, I was like, I'm going to prove to all my friends Jesus is Lord. So I read all the arguments for the resurrection, the historical witnesses, the soldiers, and all the stone and all the different stuff, you know. Who knows what I'm talking about? Like evidence that demands a verdict. Oh, thank you, dude. I need music to play while I drink the whole thing. <laughs> That's true. Littering is a sin. We'll have to get that later. I lost my thought. What was my thought? Jesus is good? Probably. It's only the beginning of the story, guys. Some people are so concerned with the, the beginning of the story and they think that's the whole gospel. No, no, no. He's alive. It, I just kind of burped a little. Did you hear it? It was exciting. <laughs> the, the, the cross is not the end of the story. The cross is not the end of the gospel. The resurrection is the beginning of the gospel. Because he's alive, now he comes to dwell in us. I was saying, when I first got saved, I was really excited about the fact that there's good evidence to support the resurrection of Jesus being unknowable, uh, not provable, but an arguable historical fact. But you know what? One of the other evidences for the resurrection, every single disciple, the 12, that claimed he's alive, they died for that belief. I mean, you're going to get together and make up a fake lie and then a story that's a lie and then die for it? I ain't doing that. I'm out. And then you got Paul saying, uh, and then he appeared to 400 people. He appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to all these people. He appeared to 400 people at one time. And then last of all, he appeared to me. You want to know one of the most 
a crazy evidences for the resurrection of Jesus? You'll, you'll know this one immediately. The billions of changed lives. And these are not just lives that have been changed by his principles and his sayings. These are people who say, I feel him. I hear his voice. I see him. I sense him. He's not words on a page. He's not principles. He's not ideas. He's not idea. He's not doctrine. He's not theology. Dude, when I went to seminary, just if you can at all avoid seminary, do it. And, and, no, if you have to go, go to a good one. Like I had a good one. But I'm saying sometimes you have to read and know stuff that doesn't fuel your intimacy with God. I have a friend and he was teaching me how to pray. He prayed the Jesus prayer. Youth, settle up. Look at me when I'm preaching. Don't be talking to each other when I'm preaching. He was trying to teach me the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And he would just pray this over and over. He's like, I'm up to praying it 60, 90 times a day. And I, so I tried to do it. Literally, while I was praying the Jesus prayer over and over, I sensed Jesus sitting, to, sitting right beside me, sitting right beside me, bored, waiting for me to be done so that we could talk again. Y'all, the billions of changed lives are not lives just changed because they applied certain principles. They're changed because of a person who is alive, who is real, and whose power, the same power that raised him from the dead, is at work in us, transforming us so that we don't love what we used to love, so that we love things we didn't love before, so that our minds don't think what they thought before, so that our hearts don't yearn for what they yearned for before. To me... Am I, are you hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. Y'all are the evidence of the resurrection. I better get off this stage, whatever you call this little carpety area. In Acts chapter 14, and in a whole bunch of other passages I have written in my notes that I'm not going to give you, we find that now that Jesus is in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. So what history is really about, what history is really about, it's a giant love story. And history is really about humanity coming home to God. That's what it's really about. That's not the story you're going to find in the news. That's not the story they're going to teach you in school. That's not the story that your friends on social media are going to be saying is the real story, Right? There's all sorts of other big stories about what life means and what's really going on. No, no, no. It's crap. What's really going on is the gospel is making progress and eventually Jesus will return and his kingdom will be set up on earth in perfect, in perfect fulfillment and all suffering will be gone and done. And God will be our God and we will be his people. That's, that's the story. That's what's real. That's what's going on. Meanwhile, he's seated in heaven and he's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. And we are on earth doing the work. Because he's alive and his spirit is in us, it's go time. The story that a lot of us think is the te our testimony. No, it's not our testimony. It's the introduction. I sat down with Jen. Fantastic interview the other day. I'm really going to be, I, hope, I don't know if I'm going to show it here in church yet. What a fantastic, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me, and he just keeps happening to me. Yes. 
And that's what I was thinking after talking to you. Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to you, and he just keeps happening to you. But the story you told me is the introduction. It's the how he got us home part. And now we start, right? Now we co-labor with Jesus. And it says, Acts 14.3, as the apostles proclaimed the message about God's grace, the Father confirmed it was true with signs and wonders. That's, and I, I like, let's see, one, two, three, four, four other passages that say the same thing. God loves to prove, hey, this message that I love you, 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 I love you. I'm going to show up and I'm going to touch hearts and lives, heal bodies, release people from, you know what I mean? I'm going to confirm that this is who I am. So with that in mind, let's do that. Let's give the Holy Spirit opportunity to minister, to confirm this great big story. I'll finish the sermon. Linda, can you, you can go ahead and come up here. So I started by saying that on Friday in the darkness and Jesus gives up his spirit with a loud cry and then the demon said, we did it. We did it. This is how I picture it. Just, just give me a little creative liberty. But Sunday morning, the sky's beginning to change. Dawn, it's pre-dawn. Dawn's coming. The stars are still out. That stone's rolled away. And Jesus standing in the garden, and he's looking up at the stars. And the light's beginning to build. The sky's beginning to change. And he has a little smile. And he says to his father, we did it. The glass? Yeah. Yeah. So last week, um, Alex was up here on prayer. Alex, please, please come up. <laughs> And um, Tom was, had been in a car accident years ago, 37 years. And glass, as a trauma nurse, I know that when glass is in your face, we get out what we can. The rest stays. It'll eventually come out. I don't think it usually takes 37 years. <laughs> but um, it, it was trying to, and it was irritating him. I think it was irritating Teresa as much as it was, well, probably more. Um, and so Alex prayed right above your eye, right? Yeah. And um, so Alex prayed for him, laid hands on him and prayed. And the next morning, I get a, the next day, I think it was, I get a picture from Tom. Can you believe it? It's out. And he, showed, he took a picture of the glass on the table. He's like, 37 years that glass was in there. Hmm? Yeah. It, 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 and so... I showed it to Alex because he was asking, like he had prayed over Janae too. He was like, how is her jaw? I said, I'll find out. So, yeah, 37 years. And you know what? That might not seem like a big deal to a lot of us, but to Tom, it was a really big deal. He was going around telling everybody, this kid prayed for me at church, <laughs> and this glass came out. What else needs to come out? 
Jesus said, I'm ready. You come. You come. So today, if that's you, if you're a Mary, if your marriage is struggling, your kids, anything, anything, he said, I'm here. I'm here, and I want you leaving different than the way you came in. So please come up. Let us pray for you. Let us lay hands on you because signs and wonders do follow when the gospel is preached. And today, every Sunday, the gospel is preached here. And if you're, if you're good, we just want to pray an Easter blessing over you as you go. May your week be absolutely beautiful. I pray that uh, blessings and the favor of God just surround you. In Jesus' name, amen.